Welcome, you're listening to the Dermatology Podcast, the official podcast of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venerology. I'm Daniel. And I'm Adriana, and we're happy to have you join us. In this episode, Professor Jan Guttenmuth is joined by Dr. Christian Posh, discussing the very important topic of skin cancer prevention and skin cancer screening. Who needs to come into clinics for screening, modern technologies in this field, and whether or not they're useful, and much more. But before we get into that... Join the Hybrid EADV Congress taking place from the 7th to the 10th of September on-site in Milan and online on our virtual platform. Featuring over 600 speakers across 170 sessions, this year's Unmissable Congress will allow you to innovate your daily practice and advance patient care with not only the highest quality of scientific research, but many opportunities to collaborate with colleagues participating from all over the world. Register now on our official website eadvcongress2022.org. Welcome back. This time, we welcome Dr. Posh, a physician scientist with nearly 15 years of experience in clinical dermatology and research in melanoma and basic skin biology. He is currently the head of dermatology at the Vienna Healthcare Group and serves as an associate editor for the JADV. And now, the floor goes to the professors. Welcome. Today, it's my pleasure to have Dr. Christian Posch with us. Thank you, Jan. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Christian, it's summertime again, and we are getting all these questions on skin cancer prevention, skin cancer screening. So we thought that this would be an important topic to discuss, and you have had a very recent commentary in the GEV on aging research and rethinking skin cancer. Um, so this is why we wanted to talk to you today. It's a perfect topic to have right now, yeah. So the first thing that comes into my mind is uh, at the moment we are seeing many patients who are coming to the clinic uh, with, the, uh, with the wish for a skin check and um, for advice about uh, protection. So um, what are your recommendations uh, or what, what would you think at the moment should we do? Whom should we screen? How should we screen in constrained circumstances and in perfect uh, circumstances? Yeah, right. So these are the two big variables, right? How much money do we want to spend on skin cancer screening? Yeah. And, and or how much money can we spend? Let's put it this way. And there is no one size fits it all. We can't just have like a cook recipe and just follow that. I think it's a puzzle. And that puzzle is something that we have to put together. And there is certainly usefulness in the fact that people seeking uh, skin cancer screenings, even at young age, And there is also usefulness in the fact that people are providing us with uh, questions regarding site-directed or lesion-directed questions. So I think the combination of these both, uh, both of these elements are probably the most effective um, to move forward. Um, one of the countries who showed us how it's being done It's actually, actually Australia. Australia started with very effective skin cancer prevention campaigns um, in the mid-80s. And we are seeing for the first time in a country with predominantly fair skin population that skin cancer numbers are at least steady state. They're not increasing anymore. They're not really going down yet, or maybe slightly. But what we're seeing is that they have somewhat reached a plateau. And I would think that that is an effect of a combined and orchestrated uh, effort um, to address skin cancer prevention and early detection on multiple different layers. And, but it was very costly. 
it, they did you know TV ads. Um, they went into schools. They did all different kinds of measures to get that message across. So what we want to do, I think, in Central Europe, where numbers are quite significantly lower um, when it comes to skin cancer, but these numbers are increasing, we want to have maybe a two-layered system where we first have people to seek advice and to get educated about the effects of UV radiation, how you can actually prevent uh, the damaging effects of UV radiation on your skin, um, and then what you should actually show to a dermatologist, to a specialist, um, when you think as a patient there might be a skin cancer on my skin. I think these two elements are going to do it in the future. And um, so who would you want to see at first in your cabinet? Who would you like to see first to, to come to you? Uh, would it be certain children with risk factors or who, 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 what other categories of patients you would say at the moment should present to us? I personally think a fantastic setup would be young parents because those are patients or they're not really patients yet. Right? They are um, young adults who are very receptive of advice, very receptive of um, learning about how to take care of their kids and themselves at the same time. And this is when you do that consistently and you like, for example, I'm here in Austria, we have a system where young mothers um, have to do certain checkups with their kids um, in order to have uh, certain support packages that the state provides. I think there are many countries who do that, right? Like a pass for, for your kids. If you combined, um, and it's right now not the case, I, I must say, um, some sort of skin information campaign with that kind of checkup, I think you would actually reach out to two critical populations. The main um, issue is it's, it's hard to measure in the very beginning because it's only going to pay off years and decades ahead of now, like in, in the future. Um, but if you ask me what is the best population to first get a hand on, this would be it, to actually educate these people and then um, have the second layer of screening in high-risk populations. We also get a better understanding of who high-risk patients could be um, and then try to give them some advice how to identify suspicious lesions and then actually um, show them, get like have easy tracks and easy paths how to show these suspicious lesions to a specialist. I think that's, that's really great to have some really clear statements. And um, I will definitely also now switch a little bit my focus to the young families. Um, can, can we use the modern technologies? There's a lot about apps and teledermatology. Um, so what, what's out there? Um, is it useful already? It's a very important question. And I get this question all the time, really, because there are a ton of apps out there that you know promise all different kinds of things. Um, yet we have to keep in mind that the majority, the vast majority of these systems have not been tested prospectively. So these are systems sometimes, you know, run on some sort of algorithm or AI-based systems um, that have been uh, trained on historic data sets. And depending on how big and how rich, and by rich, I mean how detailed and how large this data set was, um, these algorithms or these AI systems are better or not as good in predicting future outcomes of lesions that have never seen before. Um, but 
even that, I would say, even some somewhat simple test of prospectively trialing these apps, at least to my knowledge, is something that I haven't seen a whole lot. So we have to be careful with these recommendations that apps can give us. I would think that um, many of them are probably better as um, someone who is not medically educated. Yes, this is this is something that could be useful. Um, and they can be, let's say, an entry level approach to actually seeking healthcare. So if we use these apps, I think it would be critical to also have them connected to primary healthcare providers. So basically, if you scan your mole or whatever with a certain app and it comes back as suspicious, this app should right away tell you who is the next um, you know, uh, healthcare provider in your near um, surrounding and actually connect you right away with that person that could even have a look at it at first and decide whether this has to be seen right away or it can be scheduled um, for a later point in time. So I think these, these things have to be combined. In my personal experience, I would say that, so I think, I, I think I'm, I'm fairly fit in, in, in diagnosing skin cancers. Um, for me, these systems are not that, not that helpful because if I have doubts that something is either good or bad, so if I have a hard time deciding whether it's good or bad, the machine has just the exact same problem, really. Um, it's, it's somewhere in the middle. You don't really know what to do with it. Um, what these apps then can still provide is some sort of documentation, and that's a second um, uh, thing that these apps can do, and that can be helpful, that you can actually monitor such lesions over time. Obviously, you don't want to do that with the like clearly suspicious lesions, but with the ones that have a few features that are somewhat you know, standing out, but are not right away a call for excising a certain lesion. So when they got it right... Uh, it means that we can use such apps and these new technologies uh, to maybe reduce a little bit of number of unnecessary visits that the very clear, the very easy lesions are, are already taken care of by the app, but that anything that is just a little bit, that this still also gets seen by, by an expert or by a doctor who then maybe by a GP who maybe then say, yes, really, this needs to be forward, but that we could have some some uh, some of the cases already taken care of by such a device. Yeah, this is very true. And this is how, how most serious um, skin cancer screening apps are programmed. You know, they are designed in a way that they are more likely to call something suspicious than not. Mm -hmm. So if it does not call it suspicious, it's very, very unlikely that it is. And, and so there's a good safety threshold and you're absolutely right. They can help us to try to reduce the number of unnecessary visits where patients are, you know, concerned of insect bites or whatnot um, that are clearly not the uh, and not in need of a specialty uh, consultation. These are quite good prospects, I have to say, for patients. We can have a, a fast access. We can maybe generate a special access for patients who have a suspicious lesion. Um, so these are uh, interesting things, I think, for the steps, I think, for the future. What struck me in your commentary uh, that we have, on the one hand, everybody knows UV is inducing skin cancer, uh, but that there's also just the in increase of, uh, of skin cancer due to age and that there are 
intrinsic mechanisms of skin ca of cancer development that are also important in the skin. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit on this? Uh, uh, again, it has to do a lot with senescence and several um, senescence, mitochondrial dysfunction, impaired autophagy. So there are more things than UV light. Well, for sure they are. And I, I think this, this topic is absolutely fascinating. And yet it is really not new whatsoever. You know, we have always known that that aging is a big risk factor for pretty much any kind of disease. You know, if you're talking about cardiovascular disease, if you're talking about uh, fractures, uh, if you're talking about serious infections. So aging is the predominant risk factor. And, and, and the same is true for skin cancers. We see a great increase of skin cancers as we age, and this can be due to several factors. And for a long period of time, we thought and we were convinced that that is just the accumulation of exogenic of factors that affect our skin from the outside. So as UV radiation, that's the, the best known one. Um, back in the days, uh, x-rays, um, some other um, NOxa were also a problem, obviously, that are not that much today anymore. But what we have always kind of disregarded is that there is also a biology of aging. And I find that fascinating because there is a huge overlap between the hallmarks of cancer and the hallmarks of, of aging. So as you said, there is a genomic instability, which is a prerequisite for, for both of them, right? For aging and for cancer. And sometimes these, these things can overlap quite significantly. And I, I believe, and there's research pointing in that direction, that if we address some of these intrinsic um, dysfunctional biological processes that accumulate with age and not necessarily have anything to do with external factors like UV radiation, if we start addressing them as well, we are getting more effective in the sense of um, getting the most of our efforts in primary skin cancer prevention. Because obviously, number one primary skin cancer prevention is protecting yourself from UV radiation. There is no question about that, right? But I don't think in the long run, as everybody is getting older, um, this is going to cut it. We are still going to see an increase in skin cancers as long as we don't start addressing certain factors that are not necessarily related to UV radiation, but to the biological processes of aging. And there are, as you mentioned, there are several ways of, of thinking about it as, uh, for example, um, if we addressing senescent cells. Senescent cells are kind of the poster child of aging, right? These are cells that are just sitting around and not doing a whole lot. They're not dead, but they're behaving like deads. They're the walking deads, if you wish. They have, they have like a senescence-associated secretory phenotype, a pro-inflammatory pro secretory phenotype that is bad for pretty much anything. That's a term of inflammaging that is often used in, in that context. And there are certain um, drugs, and we think that there might be a lot of them actually that we can just repur repurpose that have some sort of xenomorphic or even senolytic activity. So we can kind of start addressing uh, on a very low level um, senescence and senescence-associated inflammation um, by using um, drugs that are being used for many, many years already. This is, of course, uh, something we are really interested in. Could you, could you give us some example? I heard metformin was discussed for some time, but the large trial never really got started. Um, is there something we can do with lifestyle? Is it eating more fruits or are there 
Are there some uh, synolytics that we can already apply or do we still need to wait? I'm really um, curious. <laughs> the, the second most frequent question I get if I start talking about this topic. <laughs> um, and yet it's, it's tricky because we want to give evidence-based advice here. And as you pointed out correctly, um, we are lacking clinical randomized controlled trials that show this clear benefit. At the same time, we do need to uh, keep in mind that these trials are incredibly difficult to conduct because we are talking about outcomes that come 10, 15, 20 years down the road. And so we need to look into surrogate parameters that kind of are good predictors for that outcome to happen. And this is how people actually came to metformin many years ago already uh, as a potential drug that could do that, right? So you're perfectly right. that This is a drug that people are looking into and this trial that you um, are, have just mentioned is, I think it actually started just last year or a year before that. Yeah. So people are now trying to use metformin as a drug addressing biological processes of aging, but there are some other uh, trials that are trying to do the same thing. One for them, uh, one of them is for example, rapamycin um, that is yeah. trying to cut into the mTOR signaling pathway. And, and we know that mTOR and the AMPKs are signaling molecules that are also um, addressed when we fast, for example. So fasting, you said lifestyle modification. There's actually a good amount of evidence that fasting can many good can do many good things for you. The, the question is always, what's the best way of doing it, right? And, and there's, again, this is not black and white. Not every regimen fits uh, every lifestyle or uh, every, you know, we have different needs in terms of what we do. Like you can't have a street worker who is doing heavy duty lifting and, and, and concrete pouring uh, do a fasting mimicking diet where he is basically not allowed to eat for five days, right? So this is not an option for, for this person, but there are other regimens that could work for, for, a, uh, for someone who is working physically or has physically strenuous work to do. And so, Yes, there is there is something we can do as of today. I think um, reducing calories is one of them. Um, but I'm quite sure, and that's the optimistic outlook, that there will be more. And if we have learned anything from the past, that it is more likely patients or people are going to swallow a pill than do uh, lifestyle modifications, which is kind of unfortunate, but that's the case. So I think that we will also see drugs that are going to mimic the effects of fasting, even though we could actually have these effects by just doing uh, some of these lifestyle modifications. So that sounds very exciting. Um, and I'm, I'm waiting, I'm looking forward. Um, these trials, it will take some time. That is uh, something that I also learned from, uh, from our discussion that how difficult aging trials are. Because, but as you point out, in the 1980s, Uh, what we start of, not we, our Australian colleagues started the campaigns and now almost 40 years later, uh, they see the benefit. Um, so this is like a lifetime achievement award for these colleagues. And uh, maybe I hope, I hope that we will have the fruits at some point that we will be able to, to see the same. Um, Christian, I would like to thank you very much for this really interesting uh, discussion. Um, and uh, we look forward to hearing more about 
uh, aging research and how this can reduce also the risk for skin cancer. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to be on this podcast and I'm happy to come back, you know, if you have any more questions in this regard. <laughs> Absolutely, we will. We would like to give a special thank you to all of our listeners. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or otherwise find us on any major podcast provider. We appreciate you joining us and look forward to presenting more interviews, research, and other topics of merit. Until the next episode, take care of your skin. <laughs>